I'm Matt Bush with BPR News. I'm speaking with Chris McCoy. He's a senior at UNC Asheville. He'll graduate this spring. Chris, thank you so much for coming in today. Thank you. So tell us about uh, the Shiloh School. First, what sort of drew you to it? Is uh, something you wanted to do some research on? You know, at the end of my junior year, me and my father were talking, and he asked me, was there's something at UNC Asheville that I had done that I could be proud of, something I could walk away and say, like, yeah, I really accomplished something. And one of my roommates had um, a lady he knew who was offering some undergrad research projects, and he showed me the list, and I went and did the interview with the lady, and we looked through a list of different projects, and the Shiloh School was the one that stuck out to me the most because of how much information was in the description that I had never heard of. So what hadn't you heard of? What sort of struck you as a, about it when you first looked at it? At first, I was unaware of like how African-American um, education had started in the first place, about what was like the groundwork for it, like anything of, that I had, I'd never known about. And that was one thing, the fact that the Shiloh School was a part of what was called the Rosenwald Schools, um, which were the first elementary schools built in the South. And um, the fact that it was all these schools were really sustained by the communities. They were set up to be sustained by the communities. They were given a fund of money from Julius Rosenwald, who was uh, an American entrepreneur. And he put up a certain amount of money and he'd ask that rural community to match his contribution, and then anything after that they would have to raise for themselves. So tell us more about the Shiloh School. When did it operate here in Asheville, and what sort of was its history? It first opened up in like the 1920s, 1927, and it was there were several schools around here. There was a Brevard School, Mars Hill School, and the Shiloh School. Those were the three original cities I was working on, but given how tough the project was and being able to get that many people to cooperate from so far back because my project was heavily interview based so I was just interviewing people who had went to the school who had taught to the taught at the school around this time a lot of those people are in their 80s so they were either too old or they are deceased or you know there was just not a, not enough uh, references to go by so uh, Shiloh was the one I ended up focusing on and it ended in the right right, right around when integration started where um, African-American kids could finally, you know, go into the uh, white schools. So you did talk to some people who went there. You talked to some teachers. What sorts of things did you hear? You were asking them about uh, what instruction time was like. Could they remember their first day? So what sorts of stories did you hear from them? Uh, I heard a lot of interesting stories. Um, a lot of them, actually, absolutely 100% of them said they could not remember their, their first day of school. Uh, you know, they had different instruction times. I interviewed people with uh who lived at different times, who went to the school at different times. So I got a lot of different stories. Um, I know one story I got was about a, a woman who she was homeschooled for the early part of her life before she was old enough to go to the Shiloh school. And the, she was being homeschooled by the, one of the teachers at the Shiloh school who lived next door to her. And she, they were setting her up so that she could get into school early. But that teacher happened to die like, right before it was her time to step, to go to school. So they wouldn't allow her 
to enroll early and they had she had to wait her turn but when she came in she was actually very smart very intuitive and all that what other sorts of things as you spoke to the people that um, weren't there and worked there that really stuck out to you about sort of their experiences there and some of the things that happened within the school day and within the school year what sorts of things stuck out to you i had an interview with one man who told me about how they would get their textbooks and he would say that he was a part of a group of young men who would jump in the back of a pickup truck and they would drive to one of the white schools in the Biltmore and they would be taking their hand-me-downs like their old textbooks that they were getting rid of and that school was getting new textbooks and that was what they had to go off of so a lot of their information could have been outdated and they could see like all the names of the other students written in the covers of the books you know how kids do and that was that was it. I mean, that was one thing they said. Um, a lot of the school sustainability came from fundraising and they were very invested in the community because it was a, it was the community school. The community had to put up with it. So in building the school in the first place, they had to use certain resources like fallen trees. They were chopping up trees for their wood. Um the families would donate food to the school for the kids to eat during lunch. It was it was literally a school that was being sustained by the community. And fundraisers within the school was something else you looked at. Tell us about what you found out about those. They told me that um, their biggest fundraiser was uh, fish fries. People loved fish fries. They said that was always the the biggest thing that they could do. They would do uh, they would have like community carnivals uh, they would do something called um it was like a ride into the country essentially what it was and it was a ride in a pickup truck and somebody would drive you all throughout the countryside and everything and bring you back to where the uh the carnival was originally going on but they did a lot of things like selling food and and a lot of other stuff but the fundraising was a big part of getting their school together uh, i think at the beginning when the school was being opened up julius rosenwald contributed $1,700. And I think by the time the school closed down in the 60s, it was, they had, the community had raised over 32000 You mentioned there the school shut down in the 60s, and that's when integration of schools really happened across the United States and in North Carolina. So what was the impact of integration on uh, the Rosenwald schools in general and the Shiloh school in particular? Well, you know, the schools, uh, they fizzled out when African-American kids could go to the white schools. The white schools are obviously heavily more funded by the district and county. But uh, the Rosenwald schools were basically schools that were for the rural black communities. And so th- they had to sustain it. And they knew that when integration came, the kids would need a, a better education than what they're struggling to put together now. So the, obviously they send them to the schools, to the white schools, because they could. But essentially, they fizzled out. Honestly, the Rosenwald schools were look like probably run-down barns right now on the side of the road. So chances are you could ride past them, and you not even realize that that could have been a Rosenwald school. They weren't very big. Um, they only housed grades first grade to 12th grade, So, and they were very small in the rural communities, like countryside communities. So when integration came, they just fizzled out. And I know this was something you all in your presentations talked about at the conference uh, of the effect of integration had on um, education in rural areas for African Americans and in particular Western North Carolina. So what, after doing this sort of, after you're doing your research, what what sort of your takeaways about what the effect integration had on education in these areas, in these rural areas, but in particular for Western North Carolina for the African American population here? I grew up in a town similar to a uh, 
to Shiloh, not 100% because obviously I'm, I'm a, it's a much later time, but uh, I grew up in a, in a small community um, of mainly African-American people. And I went to a school that was right down the street that I could pretty much walk to. And uh, I could, t- I, when I was talking to a lot of the, my the people I was interviewed, I could see a lot of parallels with the way that I grew up and the way that they grew up and the way that I came up through school and having uh, a lot of teachers and, uh, you know, administration so heavily embedded in my community that they look out for me and that they and they and they watch out for me and make sure that I stay on the right path like uh, the Shiloh community essentially did. And when integration came for the Shiloh community, obviously they would still be a community. But now they're out. Their kids are out into the real world. Everything's starting to change. Uh, it's no more coming home. I'm happy. uh I went to school with a bunch of my friends. I see them all day anymore. Uh, Now you're going to school and you're battling uh, racism and you're trying to be accepted and you're trying to get an education at the same time. So you're trying to stay focused through adversity. Uh, So I felt I felt like when when integration come came, that's essentially what it did. It didn't break up the community, but it, it definitely made put a strain on it. And so that's what I understood from that. And I can understand when I when I came up, it was essentially the same thing, because after I left that school, I was in a uh, I was in a predominantly white high school and a predominantly white middle school. So I could feel not the racism, and everything, but I could feel like the differences within the ways like it was just a, I could feel the vibe. I could kind of vaguely understand exactly what they were talking about. So looking at it historically, this is more than 50 years or so since uh, this school closed and these schools eventually, as you said, uh, fizzled out. So what's really the historical takeaway from this? What do we need to know about these schools and how it take from it in 2018? Just learn. Like this is this was something that I had never heard of. Honestly, I'd never heard of this was I wasn't I don't I can't even remember a time that I was taught this in elementary school, uh, middle school, high school. Uh, not even in my college courses have I ever heard of a Rosenwald school. And during the process, I would ask um, people I knew, my peers, my family members, what did, if, if they knew what a Rosenwald school was. None of them knew. As a matter of fact, a bunch of the people that I interviewed, when I told them that the Shiloh school, the school they went to was a Rosenwald school, they even asked me what a Rosenwald school was. So uh, the fact that and they would always tell me we didn't know what that was. We weren't told anything like that. We were just told to go to school. So essentially what I'm doing is what I want to do is bring awareness because these were the first elementary schools in the South. Over 5,000 schools were built in the South. So that's, that's literally the groundwork for African-American children to get getting educations prior to integration. That's a long time from that's like 40 years of no education if in the South, at least. Um for uh for african-american children so i just want people to know like this is a part of history even though you haven't heard of it they'll talk about we'll talk about slavery in school all the times we'll talk about all the negative things and we'll talk about maybe positive figures but we will never talk about you know positive events this was headed by julius rosenwald and uh booker t washington uh, as long as I've heard of Booker T. Washington, I've never heard of his contribution to the Rosenwald schools or the fact that he was the co-founder of them all. So I just want people to know that this is a this is a part of history and needs to be, uh, you know, put out there.
And my last question goes back to, I think, of what you started with saying why you chose to research this. You felt like through your college career, was there something you were really proud of? Um, mm -hmm. After having researched this, um, do you feel proud now of some of the things you've done in your college career that you've been able to research this? Absolutely. Um, I've definitely built more relationships and more connections through this. Um, when I presented at the African-American History Conference, that was, uh, that was a big thing for me. Uh, just being just getting out and presenting that research that I had uh, worked so hard for because it was a it was a long process. So um, I felt I really felt accomplished after after my presentation, because then I knew like I had I had finally I had finally finished something. And then the wave of support and people that come up that came up to me after who were just so intrigued and so interested and in how many people that I've communicated to communicated this to even after the fact um everybody's all anybody I've talked to has always been invested and wanted to know more and talk to me more about it so I'm glad that I've I was able to like spread a word for a little bit and um see if this will continue well Chris McCoy thank you so much for coming in today thank you